grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Please, please be seated. It works out very well that Jesus is uh, in an argumentative uh, conversation in John chapter 8. It works out well for uh, people who think that Jesus is this cuddly teddy bear who kind of went unabated through three years of public ministry and everyone patted him on the back, ate the bread that he provided and thought he was great. If you want to start a difficult conversation, you could start it with, aren't we right in saying that you are demon-possessed? We live in a time of argumentative conversations. We live in a time that's very, very difficult for, for, for you to just walk into a conversation, to get some wisps of that conversation, and then be able to kind of jump in. As a person who in his previous life used to just jump into conversations as kind of a know-it-all, I think pretty carefully before I speak these days. You see, sometimes entering a conversation like going into a minefield... And you put a foot down here and a foot down there and that's okay. And all of a sudden you step on something or invoke something or say something and boom, you're, you're blown up. And you're like, whoa, wait a minute. We were just talking about football. <laughs> but people, people struggle arguing about politics and religion and economics and any other host of topics that go on in pleasant conversation today. And so Jesus, in the context of John 8, they're fixing to have a, a war. Again, the beginning of that is, is so incendiary. Aren't you right? Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Well, how do you come back from that? Jesus tells them exactly who he is, exactly what the truth is, exactly what he's all about. And he says, you are in deep, deep trouble because Abraham longed for what you're seeing now. And then he says those marvelous words, before Abraham was, I am. And he put a stick in the eye of the religious establishment at, at that point. He said, you thought you had this system and it's all put together. And it's all great. and It's all wonderful and not so much. In case you're wondering, Jesus says in so many words, I'm the Messiah, I'm the guy, I'm the fulfillment of prophecy. Everything that Israel has wanted for the last thousand plus years is here before you. And Abraham would have loved it. And no, I'm not demon-possessed, Jesus says, nor will I glorify and honor myself, which is another sermon for another day. Before Abraham was... I am, Jesus said. Some people love to give me books, and I stack those books on my, in my office. And honestly, for those of you who give me books, if it's more than about 275 pages, it's super hard for me. So if you stick in there at about 200 pages, maybe 250, I'm good. And typically I get to those books. Sometimes people give me books and they go, this will enlighten your preaching. And I'm like, how will a book written by Newt Gingrich enlighten my preaching? Or how will a book by some crazy Democrat guy, how will that help my preaching? Like, well, you know, Pastor, you'll be a little bit more enlightened after you've having read this book. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm good. But typically books that I'm given, I, I work through. And whether that's kind of casually as in some or, or very dedicated like others, 
Not long, a friend, a dear friend, gave me the book, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. The book basically has two sections in it. The first is Frankl's section about having been in Auschwitz and what that meant and what that looked like. And uh, One of the pieces for me that was powerful is on the train station coming out of Austria where Frankl was from, there was a, a Nazi officer who, who sat behind a table and pointed to that train and that train and that train and that train. And it didn't dawn on Frankel until after he was in the concentration camp that that man was basically deciding who was fit enough to work and produce and who was going to be exterminated. It's an interesting read. The second part of the book, after he moves from the Auschwitz piece, is about meaning, meaning of life, meaning and depth of understanding. And what he learned and, and understood as, as he moved through his time in the worst of the worst. And it resonated with me. The idea of meaning is somewhat lost in the idea of being busy. And sometimes I think that our culture is so busy that we've lost thinking about meaning. Or maybe better said, we've tried to find meaning in doing more things rather than living more richly and with more depth. It seems to me we've looked at a lot of subjects to find meaning. Meanwhile, meaning for Christians has been right under our nose. Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And so deep meaning doesn't come from pursuing consumption. If it, if it did, we'd all have all the meaning we could possibly handle. There's but there's always more to buy, there's always more to possess, there's always more to have. And deep meaning doesn't come in power and exercising power over other people. There's always someone more powerful, there's always someone more ruthless, there's always someone who's stronger or better armed. And, and deep meaning doesn't come from being right and correct all the time for having all the answers, for saying, I know everything and I'm smarter than you, so you have to listen to me. And, and I find meaning in being smarter or having a better grade on whatever than you did. Deep meaning doesn't come from always being correct because there's always hypocrisy and arrogance and pride associated with those conversations. Meaning? Meaning comes from simple things, like working at a job and doing good work for a long period of time of helping people and living in a way that's unselfish. Deep meaning comes, as the mourners will tell you this morning, from raising a family. What a blessing little Jackson has been to you guys. Lauren, I didn't know if you were going to make it in your classroom. Some of those days I walked in a couple of times, it was so hot, and you were so pregnant. I thought, oh my gosh. Tell me holding that baby in the middle of the night isn't the very, very best thing. Providing meaning in seeing the next generation here and now cared for and loved and brought to Jesus, right? Deep rich, meaningful relationships come in living in our families. Franco would offer that deep meaning comes also from understanding suffering and pain, and that in understanding suffering and pain and the challenges of life, that we become better people. 
or people who get that God works in and through painful pieces, not just easy pieces of life. And to that last point, Frankel writes over and over again that that's what the survivors of the Holocaust had, that the victims of the Holocaust didn't necessarily have, and that he could watch people fade to death as their attitude was worse and worse and worse. And the people who lived and thrived in the most horrific of situations were those who found meaning in the suffering and the pain which saw them through that suffering pain and allowed them to care and encourage other people. In a time of argumentation and social conflict, the remedy is not really winning the argument anymore. Jesus wins this argument and he's killed right after this. He won the day, he won the argument. 2,000 years later, we can look and say, Jesus won the fight. But in our day and time, The remedy is not really winning every argument. Perhaps the peace that's most significant to us is holding on to the truth. And in some cases, just holding to the reality that there is truth. And so we come back to scriptures for the truth. We come back to the word of God for truth. As Lutherans, I don't have to get up and kind of invent truth every week and say, well, the Spirit spoke a word of truth to me this week. Rather, I can go right to John chapter 8 and say the word of Jesus. If you hold to my teaching, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Christianity provides a deep, resonant meaning to all who believe it, to all who confess faith in God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Christianity as a movement and as an intellectual movement, as a philosophy of life, but even more than all of that, as an understanding of life, as a deep and abiding relationship with the God of the universe, His Son, the Redeemer, and the Holy Spirit who proceeds from them, Christianity provides a way of thinking and feeling and living that provides a deep meaning to us and links the events of our lives together in an integrated way rather than a random, senseless, meaningless way. And that sort of thinking, that deep integration that Christianity and faith in Jesus provides brings, I believe, the single gift of the Spirit that our culture needs the most. But the fruits of the Spirit are love and joy and peace. Not the peace that comes from winning an argument, folding your arms over one another and saying, I'm smarter than you. But the peace that comes from being connected with the Lord of the universe, His Son, and the Spirit of the living God. Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Three strands of thinking regarding truth on Holy Trinity Sunday. It should be Sunday of singing the best hymns in the Holy Hymnal Sunday, but that's, that's not mine to change. 
three strands of truth that come from this. First strand to hold on to right now as, as this truth is being assailed in our culture and in the conversations that are in the body politic. Here you go. You are created by God the Father and the very best of His hand. Scripture records that your identity is found and rooted in being created in the image of God. And anything that would come after that would be demonic. Anything that would say, you know, yeah, but still. Or you're created just out of randomness, and the randomness has no meaning, therefore life has no meaning, therefore you live, you do your thing, you're born, you live, you do your thing, and then you die. No. You are created by God the Father, and the very best of His hand. Everything else was spoken into being except you. You are handmade, handicrafted. You are, you are made like a potter makes a pot with the unique ridges and seams that no two pots are ever the same. You are created in the image of God. Everything else spoken, hands off, but you are hand formed. God reached into the dust of the Garden of Eden and created Adam. And he looked at Adam and he said, it's not good to be alone, brother. How about Eve? And he said, wow, how about Eve? And he created men for women and women for men. You are not a genetic mess, nor are you some weird genetic accident. Your identity is rooted, rooted in the fact that you are created in the image of God. So when you are called upon to self-identify, you can smile, look the person in the eye and say, I'm a child of God. I was created in the image of God. I'm the best thing going today. And let them spin with their gyrations, their philosophies, their weird stuff. Let them talk about how they self-identify. And when they ask you if you're persuaded, say, yeah, I'm persuaded. I'm created in the image of God. God made me and provides for me and the transcendent peace that I have from knowing God and knowing who I am in God provides me a sense of strength and truth that supersedes the silliness of the world. And it's a truth, the truth, that sets me free. And the second strand, Jesus says that those who sin are slaves to sin. So the second strand of truth is that of the truth of redemption delivered by Jesus. For so many, we live with a sense of guilt. We look back at the past and, and, and we don't see all the good stuff. We, we see the, 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 the painful things. We see the broken, sinful moments. And we have a sense of guilt in that. I had a funeral in, in April. Actually, we had nine funerals in April. And I had one of them. Actually, I had six of them. But I had one that... And the lady came out of the door in the back and she said, thank you for that. And I said, for a funeral? For your friend? And she said, Pastor, this is the first time in two years I haven't felt guilty. <laughs> I said, holy smokes. I said, we're here every week. Sunday morning, 8.30 and 10.30. You want the answer to guilt? Here it is. Sometimes I think that meaning is quashed by guilt and its horrible cousin, shame. But Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life has resolved issues of guilt and shame for us. Do you deal with guilt? Are you feeling shame? 
If guilt is luggage from sin, then I can assure you that the truth is that Jesus has taken that luggage away from you. He pushed it aside at the cross and he said, I got this. You don't need to handle this. Matter of fact, you can't handle this. Let me take this burden from you. And he took all the stuff in that luggage and eradicated it by his death on the cross. Before Abraham was, I am, Jesus said. The Messiah came to deal with sin and brokenness. He came to cover his people in his love and get rid of the shame that started in the Garden of Eden and permeates humanity even to this day. But to Christians, to those of us who believe, Jesus says, I got this. The guilt that we carry is left at the cross of Jesus. He takes it. The luggage is gone. The shame is gone. All of the lies, all of the deception, all of the garbage that leads to arguing and anxiety is removed from us. And that vulnerable feeling that shame gives is covered in the sacrifice of Jesus. And again, that deep, resonant sense of peace. But the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. A while ago, I was invited to go out on a sailboat with a friend. He said, come on, let's go. I've got some other buddies. We'll go. We'll have a good, a good morning of it. We'll go out, and it'll be great. And I get seasick really, really easy. I mean, I turn green before we're even out of the harbor. It's a little bit embarrassing. but So we're getting to the edge of the, edge of the jetty at Corona Del Mar, and he's motoring out, and all the things are kind of good. And he's got this big smile on his face. I mean, he's like, this is going to be great. And I'm just holding on, turning green the whole time. I'm like, okay, here we go. We motored out of the harbor and we headed north towards Huntington Beach, away from the shore more and more. And in my younger days, I was a fairly strong swimmer in a simple pool in the backyard, but I always get a little freaked out about how deep the ocean is, how quickly you get off the coast. And I'm thinking of the sharks and the all the stuff, and I'm glad that the gentleman I was with was a fine, fine sailor. Finally, the grin on his face became more than he could bear, and he got this thing. He said, now, hold on, and I thought, whatever, I'll hold on. I'm good, but he raised the sail, and the wind caught that sail, and it popped. You could just feel it snapped. The wind filled up filled up that sail and the boat lifted out of the water and it got exponentially faster as the sail became tighter and tighter and he said and he smiled he goes I told you to hang on and so we hung on and the sounds were amazing the sound of the water being cut by the bow of the boat the sound of the wind and the sail and the deafening, quiet sound of the ocean and the quietness of the conversation. It was a marvelous moment. And we were moving. We were moving. Strand three is that gift of the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit is the wind in your sail. He points you to meaning because he points you to Jesus. He speaks words of love to your heart. 
When people are all over you and say, you know, you need to win this argument, you stupid Christians, blah, blah, blah. It's the Spirit of God that says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name, and you are mine. Someone says, you know what? I've been with you when you were this and you were that, and how in the world? And, and it's the Spirit of God that says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free, and the truth is that I am in Jesus, and Jesus is in me. He guides you in your prayers and in your relationships. And so much of what is done quietly in your soul is done by the Spirit of God. It's not some public display like it was in our reading from Acts chapter 2. It's the quiet, peaceful work of the Spirit in your heart and life who lifts you up and fills the sail of your soul with goodness and love and joy and peace. And leads you to those moments and those seasons of restoration. So powerful is our God. So gracious is our God. So loving is our God. That your connection to Him through faith provides this deep, rich sense of meaning. And a life that is integrated. Our thoughts, our feelings, our behaviors integrated through faith in Jesus Christ. And that, my dear, dear Christian friends and family of St. John's, our lives built on the foundation of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit lead us away from confusion and lead us to that marvelous gift of God's peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.